Hi, everyone. This is Joe DeBose. Welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today, we're joined by one of my old mentors, Dr. Dimitrios Dimitriades, the true Greek god, the Zeus, if you will, of trauma, uh, certainly in my eyes. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dimitriades. It's a pleasure, Joe, and I like the description a lot. <laughs> <laughs> My, I have a, some questions today. We'll talk about colon injury, uh, and, and it's really kind of a fascinating to look back through history and see how those practices have changed and continue to change. So I'm going to ask you for our listeners who vary from resident, uh, residents all the way up to attending level uh, a little bit about colon injury. Um, and my first question is for, for you, uh, you know, it was once hypothesized, at least, that the location of the colon injury, at least in penetrating cases, should be an independent factor in deciding whether to repair or perform a diversion. Uh, why was that the case, and is it true? Yeah, um, uh, this is an interesting question, and uh, when I look into this uh, in significant depth, uh, there is absolutely no uh, class one or two or three evidence to suggest that uh, the left colon is different from the right colon. Uh, theoretically, somebody, I don't know who, many decades ago, uh, suggested that the anatomy of the left colon is different from the right colon, and the contents are different, and therefore they should be uh, treated differently. And quite a few years ago, I did a, a couple of studies on baboons. Baboons have uh, anatomically the same uh, colon as humans, and the flora is exactly the same as in humans. So I got a um, uh, this animal, experimental animals, and uh, without any preparation, I did a resection of the right colon and primary anastomosis, and the resection of the right colon, primary anastomosis on the same animal. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, post-operatively, or day uh, eight or ten, I don't remember exactly, uh, we went back and we checked for any difference in healing. We check for any anastomotic uh, leaks, and then mechanically uh, we tested with tensile strength the anastomosis in the left colon and the right colon, and biochemically we uh, tested again uh, the quality of the healing process. We measure hydroxy or proline content, mm-hmm. and they were exactly the same. Left colon, right colon were exactly the same. And then I did another study, again on baboons. In, uh, in this situation, I introduced hypotension, severe hypotension to simulate an hypotensive trauma patient. And repeated the same things, exactly the same quality. So it's a total myth perpetuated for a long time, zero scientific evidence behind this. Well, let, let me ask you about another myth that I think you've largely helped us to dispel a bit. Um, it's also kind of historically was hypothesized that a bullet that passes through the colon and lodges, say, in the vertebral body uh, represents a potential source for infection, and we should be more aggressive about removing those. What changed that perspective, and is that too also a myth? Yeah, uh, theoretically, it makes sense. Uh, the bullets are not sterile. Uh, people think that bullets are sterile, and don't worry, they are not really sterile because the high temperature at the muzzle does not last long enough to sterilize uh, the bullet. And uh, historically, in the Vietnam War, the Viet Cong used to dip bullets in human feces uh, to make things, the injuries worse. 
So theoretically, it makes uh, sense to remove them. Practically, uh, it seems that there is no effect on sepsis if you remove or you do not remove the bullet. And a few years ago, we uh, did a study, I think about uh, 85 uh, patients, about half of them, we, uh, it was the bullet going through the colon and lodged in the body. In half of them, the bullet was removed. In the other half, uh, the bullet uh, stayed in place. Exactly the same incidence of septic complications. So the message is, if the bullet is in front of you, begging you, please take me out, remove it. <laughs> if it's under the skin and you can feel it and take it out easily, take it out. But don't spend one hour trying to find a bullet in the retroperitoneum or uh, in the muscle, deep in the muscle. So if the bullet asks nicely to be taken out and provides you an opportunity, do it. And that's uh, that's the take-home lesson. Right. Okay. Uh, let's move on from kind of the mythology that you've kind of helped us unravel to the, the nuts and bolts and practical elements of uh, colon injury management. So let's say you take a patient back who's been hypotensive for trauma laparotomy and you identify an injured segment of colon and you're trying to determine if you need to resect or you can and, and do a um, diversion or if you can perform a primary repair. Is How do you make that decision? Is it different for blunt? Is it different for penetrating? And what do you use or advise that we should do to make those decisions? Right. Uh, uh, so generally, we consider, uh, we classify the severity of colon injuries into destructive and non-destructive injuries. And by definition, destructive injuries involve devascularization of a segment, and this for sure 100% needs uh, resection. And also, destructive injuries include penetrating trauma with the uh, circumference uh, uh, more than 50% involved. Um, again, here, um, I wouldn't buy this at face uh, uh, value. Uh, if there is an injury, and after the debridement, and even if it's more than 50%, uh, you can do a nice anastomosis without restriction, by all means, uh, do it. I wouldn't do resection because um, the division of the colon circumference is more than 50%. So, <clears throat> do the breathing of the wound, and if it doesn't look good, do your resection. If you can't do repair, do repair. In plant trauma, almost always you need to do a resection because there is a lot of uh, tissue ischemia, a lot of bruising, and uh, almost always you need to do a, a resection. Okay, so once we resect that segment, um, you talked a little bit about it. You, you didn't mean, even mention diversion in that description. Does anyone need, who needs diversion? What factors play a role in colostomy uh, utilization and trauma? Are there special factors about combined injuries? If I have a duodenal injury and a colon injury, is that different than just an isolated colon? What are your factors that go into deciding if I put it back together or if I do a colostomy and divert? Yeah, the history about uh, colostomy diversion versus primary repair is absolutely uh, fascinating. And just uh, from a historical perspective, uh, diversion was introduced during the Second World War. In fact, there was a certain general infection, but all colon injuries 
No, go ahead. I think you're getting to the controversy part. Yep. No, the controversy is um, about patients who require a resection. And that from uh, many uh, decades, uh, the standard of care was if the patient uh, had needed resection, a colostomy should be done. And then a little bit later, this was a challenge in my study which included patients with no risk factors. Now it was destructive injury, but the patient had no hypotension, no multiple transfusions, no major associated intra-abdominal uh, injuries, no delay in operation. And in this group of isolated uh, low-risk uh, patients, it was safe, it was shown to be safe to do primary anastomosis. And later on, uh, the concept of diversion, if there is a risk factor, was challenged as uh, well. And uh, uh, currently, in my mind, uh, the way to go is uh, primary uh, anastomosis. And uh, you know, we did uh, a study in which you participated, actually, double yeah. AST study a few years ago, multi-center study, Destructive injuries requiring resection, more than, I don't know, nearly 300 patients. And there were quite a few interesting uh, messages. Uh, that was the study was in 2001, and it was uh, practically 300 uh, patients. And the interesting thing was that um, uh, the incidence of anastomotic leak was uh, about 7%, but nobody died because of an anastomotic leak. But when we did multivariate analysis, which uh, included the various risk factors, the only risk factor for an anastomotic leak was practically uh, uh, nothing. Uh, the complications would occur at a much higher incidence in the diversion group. Uh, remember that if you do a resection, the incidence of intra-abdominal sepsis complications is more than 
but these incidents will not really be affected by colostomy or primary repair. It doesn't matter what you do, uh, the incidence will be very high. And interestingly, in this study, we isolated a subgroup of patients who had their high risks. They had uh, associated injuries, multiple uh, transfusions, uh, severe uh, contamination. As you compare these uh, two groups, anastomosis versus uh, diversion, and uh, there were four deaths in this group, all of them in the colostomy uh, group, colony-related deaths yeah. in the colostomy uh, group, no deaths in the primary uh, repair. Uh, so uh, in my mind, and this is what I've been doing for many years, I always uh, do primary anastomosis, except in the very rare cases where the bowel doesn't look very good, the, the blood supply doesn't look very good, or is massively edematous. That's, that's a rare situation I would do uh, a colostomy. Or if there is an extraperitoneal rectal injury, which I couldn't repair securely. So these are my thoughts and my indications. I know that it's still a controversial issue. The ease guidelines recommend that you can do uh, anastomosis, resection and anastomosis in the majority of cases. But if there are certain very high risk patients, you would consider doing a diversion. I, th I think what people forget sometimes, too, is that uh, if you're managing the colon with a colostomy, you now buy the potential complications of and downsides of a colostomy. So, Well, that's a very important point to take into account. A colostomy itself, besides uh, the very bad psychological effect it has on the patient, you know, it's another procedure which is associated with a significant complication rate. And especially if you do a heart mass procedure, it's a difficult operation. The complication rate is really very high. And you look into that, uh, the colostomy closure is not an innocent procedure. And you know, you all you're talking about putting these patients together for primary anastomosis. One of the things you always kind of taught me and changed my practice. Um, you know, I see a lot of people trained at other places who are in the common practice at damage control laparotomy of staping off the intestines and leaving them in discontinuity at the initial case. Um, what do you think about that practice as a routine approach to damage control? Uh, and what would you suggest that would considerations would be? Yeah, you know, the standard recommendation for damage control is um, uh, you go in, you stop the bleeding, there is an injury to the colon, uh, don't waste time to do anastomosis, table it off, and then come back uh, two days later, whatever, when the patient is stabilized, and do the definitive uh, procedure. Uh, we were concerned, at least theoretically concerned about this approach. If you clear, create a complete bowel obstruction, small bowel or large bowel obstruction. Number one, uh, you dilate this proximal bowel and you make any ischemia worse. And number two, I think this obstruction encourages toxin and bacteria translocation. And this has been shown in non-trauma patients 
with obstruction. Mm -hmm. Within a few hours of creating a complete obstruction, four to six hours, you start having toxin and bacterial translocation. So that was a theoretical concern. And um, as you remember, a few years ago, we did enjoy study. You are a co in the study, actually. Uh, three centers, the shock center, Texas and USC. And uh, we analyzed these patients with damage control and we found a significantly higher incidence of proximal bowel ischemia for those with a stable bowel. Yep. And following that, we did another, Dr. Benjamin, Elizabeth Benjamin, uh, who was a PI, did another multi-center AST sponsor study, which was completed just now, about uh, 300 patients, which found uh, that, uh, not a project yet not published, um, that um, stabling the bowel for damage control was independently associated with increased complications and increased anastomotic leak. So uh, from uh, my point of view, I'll take an extra few minutes and I'll do the reconstruction. I'll come back, if there is anything wrong with anastomosis, I will see it at the comeback uh, operation. And one of the technical things I do, I always, always, always protect my anastomosis with a nice metal flap. I think that's the most important technical part of the operation. Yeah, so let's step back for a second and say, you know, taking aside the damage control or coming back and doing it, what is what will be your technical tips that you wish people knew for the optimal colon anastomosis after trauma resection? Okay, so there are two types of anastomosis. One is the hand zone and the other one is uh, the stable anastomosis. And a, a couple of retrospective studies in the past suggested that uh, the hand zone anastomosis in trauma is safer than the stable anastomosis. Now, in the study in which you participated with the AAST study, when we compare hand zone versus stable anastomosis, it didn't make any difference. I personally, I like doing hand zone anastomosis, but if you prefer stable anastomosis, no problem. Now, the key technical things which are absolutely important. Number one, you do nice debridement. Even for penetrating trauma, especially gunshot injuries, you excise the wound or the edges until you have nice, happy, healthy tissue. Okay. Now, uh, when you excise this, very often there is a fair amount of uh, oozing from the uh, excised edges. Don't start using cautery. You are going to damage uh, the tissues. Let it bleed a little bit, compress it a little bit, and this bleeding will stop when you start doing your anastomosis. The anastomosis, that's a, a key uh, part to remember. Don't use cautery. That's my own anecdotal approach. The edges should, should have excellent blood supply. It should be zero tension. And the most important of all, get an omentum. You can always find a flap of omentum and wrap it around the anastomosis, uh, suture it on the serosa around the anastomosis, and um, you'll be safe. Uh, one of our attendings, you know, Dr. Lamb, mm -hmm. 
calls my anastomosis, calls me the teflon surgeon because my anastomosis almost never leaks. Mm-hmm. And I share with you the secret. The secret is the omentum, protein omentum. Okay. What about, you know, I have seen, and it has been discussed, though not well studied, uh, people spray fiber and sealants and a variety of other things over their anastomosis uh, sites. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are some experimental studies which suggested that if you spray this uh, tissue glue around it, uh, it reduces the incidence of uh, anastomotic uh, leaks. I do not uh, know anything in trauma, but so if you have the to see the tissue glue, by all means uh, apply it. I'm not sure if it helps or not, but there's no substitute for the omenta flower. Okay, perfect. Uh, let me let's move into the post-operative phase. You've done one of your spectacular anastomoses. What in the post-operative phase? Um, how do you manage just relative to the colon? Resuscitation can be very obviously a complex issue with other competing factors. But if we're thinking just about the colon, what are your tips for resuscitation to optimize that anastomosis? Do you continue antibiotics? What do, what do you do in the post-operative phase? Okay, so uh, number one, uh, as you hinted, avoid excessive uh, fluid crystalloid resuscitation. Uh, there is some good evidence that if you do this excessive fluid resuscitation, you increase the power edema, you increase the risk of an anastomotic uh, leak. Number two, technical thing, uh, never close the skin. If you close uh, the skin, there is an unacceptably high incidence of uh, infection, severe infection and partial adhesions. But again, historically, I think it would be of interest to the audience to hear that. Uh, quite a few years ago, uh, when Dr. Vermahos was here, I think you are there, part of the study as well. Uh, during the teaching grounds at 9.30 in the morning, there was very often this debate about closing the skin in colon uh, injuries. Mm-hmm. And uh, one group of uh, surgeons would say, oh, no, never close it. The other group of surgeons would say, look, uh, close it and keep an eye on it. And if it gets infected, then move the stables. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do a randomized uh, study. And we had to cut uh, the study very short uh, because the incidence of sepsis in the cases where you close the skin was unacceptably high. And also there was a very high incidence of fascia adhesions. I remember. So, uh, uh, you remember the study? Yes, sir. Uh, you beat it into my head every day as an ICU fellow. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So uh, my practice now is to leave wash the fascia after closure and apply negative pressure therapy on the open wound. So I wouldn't close uh, the skin. Do you ever take them back for this delayed primary closure of the skin that people talk about? Yeah, sometimes, uh, especially if the patient is very thin, uh, it heals on its own without anything. Now, if the patient has excessive uh, tissue, uh, uh, then uh, you might have to do uh, uh, closure, maybe bedside. So you individualize. Fair enough. So okay. then, next thing, which uh, is antibiotics. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's another important thing. Anecdotally, I think where a lot of surgeons will give antibiotics for at least five uh, days. And uh, theoretically, uh, 
it might make sense because they are not really prophylactic anymore. You go in and you find uh, stool all over the place, and it's one hour after the injury. Some people will say this is therapeutic, therefore uh, we should give antibiotics for five days. And um, we did another uh, study when Dr. Conwell was here, a randomized study uh, for these colon injuries, one day versus five days of prophylaxis. And in fact, uh, in the five day prophylaxis, the incidence uh, of uh, infection uh, was higher, although not statistically significant. So my practice has always been 24 hour prophylaxis. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, and I, I will tell for the listeners, I think you've done a really nice job of summarizing. First of all, talking to you about colon injuries, we really get to cover the full gamut from myth into modern understanding. Uh, but there is a nice publication you put out about contemporary trends and outcomes of blunt traumatic colon injuries requiring resection and journal of surgical research last month, March 2020. So I do encourage people to check that out. In that, you highlighted a number of areas, or at least you suggested were areas for further research needed in the area of colon injuries. In your mind, what are the most pressing research demands in this area? Yeah. Well, uh, two things we want to see uh, in blunt trauma if uh, uh, the uh, diversion or anastomosis is, which is the optimal uh, management, but uh, uh, in my mind, the damage control situation, the thing which we've been working on on uh, a couple of studies. Um, what is the best thing? Anastomos or, um, uh, uh, or stable off? These are the two areas which need uh, randomized studies, but I want to emphasize that prospective studies are not made in order to change policies. You never change policy on the basis for retrospective studies. Retrospective studies are there to stimulate the brain of the researcher. This is an area where you need to do a good, a nicely designed prospective, ideally a randomized uh, study. What else have I not asked about colon injuries that you think uh, listeners from residents to attendings would want, need to know, that you wish they did? Yeah, uh, there are certain situations where you need to be extra careful if there is an associated pancreatic injury or if there is an associated kidney injury. Uh, there, there is a uh, risk of an anastomotic leak. Remember that pancreatic enzymes will not allow an nice healing. Or urea, urea uh, will not really allow a nice healing. In these cases, I will still do primary repair, but I'll make sure, again, I, I'm coming back to the momentum thing. I protect my repair or anastomosis with the nice metal patch, and I will drain generously the pancreatic injury or the kidney uh, injury. All right. Well, Dr. D, you, as, as, as always, you have been a wealth of knowledge. We do like to close our podcast with what we call our random questions. And some of these are silly. Some of these are designed to get, give some insight to you as a human being so that everybody else can know and love you as much as I do. And some are just designed to pick your brain and give some great, great advice to the people that are listening, not related specifically to colon injury. So if you're with your permission, I'd like to ask you some of these random questions. Is that okay? All right. 
All right, so you're, you are Greek by heritage, uh, trained in South Africa. You've been around the world, but truly a Greek icon of, of surgery. And the contributions to mankind from the Greek culture are myriad. You've given us philosophy, art, language. Uh, you gave us the hero, which, hey, is there anything better to eat on a, on a hot day? Um, what do you consider to be the greatest contribution of Greek culture to the modern world? Yeah, so uh, there is, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, it, it, there is no doubt that uh, the biggest uh, gift and contribution is uh, democracy. And uh, I know that a lot of uh, Americans visit uh, Athens and they always visit uh, Acropolis. So next time when you go to Athens, uh, George, I mean, uh, Joe, and you uh, visit Acropolis, to the west of Acropolis, about half a mile, there is a, a rocky hill, which okay. is called Knix, P-N-Y-X. Okay. That was the center of um, democracy. That area there, in this rocky area, has um, car, uh, stairs and seats all around. And it was created about the fifth, sixth century BC. And it was the place uh, where all the Athenians would go and discuss uh, common uh, city uh, problems and politics and elections. So it could seat about six to 10,000 people. Wow. And anybody, anybody, any citizen had the right to stand up and express uh, his uh, view. Anybody had the right to criticize the political leaders, it doesn't matter how powerful uh, they were. And in fact, uh, the person who presided this meeting had the famous saying, and if I want to say it in the ancient Greek, it's this Agorelin Bulede. That's the ancient Greek, which means who wants to talk? Oh, okay. So everybody, everybody has. So this is inspiring. This is exactly what we are doing uh, in democratic countries uh, today. We debate and we talk and we criticize uh, our leaders without any fear. That's the greatest contribution. That uh, I tell you. Thing, you can criticize uh, anybody in the academic field. Uh, about his uh, thoughts, challenge his thoughts, his uh, ideas, his practices, without any fear. It's powerful, more powerful than the hero. I'll give you democracy is more important. That, that's very, very true. Um, Okay, next question. So it's, it, you get a rare day off. It's your day off. You're sitting at home. The, the Southern California air is beautiful. You're sitting on the back patio having a nice lunch, and you're listening to music. So you get to pick what's on your plate, what's in your glass, and what's on the radio. So what's on your plate, what's in your glass, and what's on the radio? First, I want to start with the radio because it's uh, the easy one. Okay. Always 100% is opera music. And in my office, I think I drive everybody crazy, nonstop, 24 hours. I have an uh, opera station. What's your favorite <laughs> opera? What's your favorite opera? What's your favorite? Uh... Uh, I, I like, uh, I, I, I practically, I like uh, all opera, but uh, Verdi is my, uh, my favorite. But um, I think I drive everybody uh, crazy. <laughs> but um, this is what uh, I do. For uh, lunch, I'm not a great uh, um, food fan, so by lunch I, use, I usually have something 
very light. Uh, it'll have uh, yogurt and they'll have um, uh, berries and nuts and that's all. And uh, I'm not a great wine uh, drinker or beer drinker, so uh, food is not really any of my hobbies. Well, you keep eating healthy like that, Dr. Dean, you're going to live forever. So, uh, yeah, keep yeah going. I'll live forever, that's yeah. right. So, <laughs> next question. Socrates from your native Greece is credited with the expression, I cannot teach anybody anything. I can only make them think. I consider you as a modern Socrates of trauma. So, how do you approach the teaching of contemporary medical students, residents, and fellows? Yeah, I know. Uh, Uh, I classify teachers into two groups, Uh, the knowledgeable teacher and the good teacher. The knowledgeable teacher will stand up in front uh, of the students and residents and fellows and uh, will describe uh, nonstop in every detail uh, the coagulation cascades, every single thing from beginning to end, Uh, and he does it everything himself and at the end of his presentation nobody remembers a thing they come out more confused (laughs) Uh, so this is a knowledgeable teacher but not a good teacher a good teacher is the one who uh, uh, number one takes a complex problem and makes it look simple the second quality of a good teacher is that let's uh, the students and the residents do most of the talking. So uh, you ask them the question, that you get them involved, they didn't get it right, redirect them until they find the right uh, answer. And the third quality of a good teacher is uh, to make everybody comfortable, uh, to make them feel that if they do not get the answer correct, they shouldn't feel embarrassed. Um, so these are the three qualities of a uh, good uh, teacher, Joe. Those are great lessons. I I'll, I certainly t- try to take them to heart. You given to them, uh, given them to me before. Um, yeah. So our our last question uh, for you before we uh, we've taken a lot of your valuable time today, but you've quite possibly contributed more to the medical alert, uh, literature than any trauma surgeon I know, maybe any trauma surgeon alive by sheer volume. What advice would you give to a young trainee or a young trauma surgeon about how to start and maintain a trauma research interest and career? You know, they need to have, uh, you know, there are people who are talented as uh, clinicians or administrators or researchers. Uh, So I think you need to follow the path which uh, excites you. Now, for research, you need to have an inquisitive uh, mind. Listen to what we say, what your teachers say, uh, but uh, don't take them at 100% at face value. Most likely, most of these things will change in a few years' time. So uh, challenge this in your mind that in order to do that, you need to know very well the literature. I get most of my ideas for research during the teaching grounds, as you remember, every day at 9.30 in the morning, we have teaching grounds, we'll discuss a case purely from the educational point of view. And we always had, you know, fellows and residents, and uh, I would ask, um, your opinion, Joe, what is your opinion about that? Yeah. You would express your opinion. And I would ask another uh, attending or uh, fellow, what is your opinion on that? And different opinion. 
What is the literature say? Hmm, the literature is not really so good. That's a great opportunity to uh, do a research project uh, on this topic. So this is where most of my ideas come from uh, um, for research. And uh, in order to do that, you need to know the literature and you need to have a restless uh, mind. Uh, again, good uh, retrospective studies, uh, they are useful just to guide better perspectives, maybe randomized study. You never uh, change uh, practices on the basis of these studies. And um, the last thing, just try to go to a center especially with faculty with tradition in teaching okay and, and doing research if you i remember that one of the first uh, uh, things you did and uh, john i remember it very fondly you started within a few days you came to my office and you said dr d i want to do some research and then i didn't really take you very uh, seriously <laughs> i said well, yeah everybody said what to do uh, research Nobody takes me seriously, Dr. Okay, okay. Yeah. A few days later, you come back, ah, oh, Dr. D, I want to do uh, some research. Again, I didn't take it very seriously. Yeah, okay, okay. The next day you come back, Dr. D, I want to do some research. And I said, look, I'm, I'm giving a project. Uh, so I gave you a project, and to my big surprise, within a few days, you had it, you had it done, you completed it. And I said, this guy is amazing. So this is how I remember you very fondly uh, from the research point of view, Joe. Well, I appreciate that. I, you were a great uh, teacher, and I, I think any good pupil wants to make their teacher happy and be a, the star pupil. So, Dr. D, this has been fantastic. As always, you are a wealth of knowledge, and uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care, Joe, and look after yourself. Will do, sir. This has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Thanks so much again for listening, and be sure to check out the rest of our content available however you consume podcasts.